Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in our, our study in the, the book of Hebrews. Have you guys been enjoying this so far? Learning a little bit? I know every time that I sit down to study these things, I always learn more and more. That's the great thing about the Bible is you actually never stop growing in it. You never stop learning. Every time you look at it, God will show you something new. And, and I've been blessed, so I hope that you guys have been so far as well. So today we're going to go ahead and as we continue on in uh, chapter 9, the author is going to continue making that contrast of the old and the new covenant. And today we're going to see that Jesus is actually the, the mediator of this new covenant, and it was actually his death that ushers in the new covenant. And the great news about that is that uh, as a result of his sacrifice, what he did, all of us who believe are going to receive an eternal inheritance. I mean, that's good news. That means that the salvation that we're receiving, it's eternal. It's not temporary. It's not just for a point in time or for a little while, but it's something that we receive eternally. It can never be taken away. And this is the reason for this is because our high priest, unlike the Levitical priest, didn't enter an earthly representation of a heavenly place, but he actually entered in to the heavenly realm into the, to the, the Holy of Holies in heaven to stand before God to make his sacrifice. And as you'll, you'll see that the reality is, is that uh, because Jesus was, was God, his sacrifice was actually enough for every man and every woman that ever lived. Amen? Amen. He is our, our representative before God. He is the single sacrifice that stands for all time, guaranteeing each and every one of us our salvation. Amen? And that's great news. So let's go ahead and dive in this morning. Hebrews 9, verse 15. It says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So anytime you come across this word here, therefore, you need to back up a little bit to figure out what the heck it's talking about, to, to get a grip. So to understand, we're going to go back a few verses. It's actually where we ended last week, but it's Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, and this is what it says. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification, purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God so the therefore that it's talking about is that Jesus appeared as our high priest and he entered a more perfect holy place not a earthly representation but one that is was created by God not by man and because of this, he secured for us eternal redemption, but not just eternal redemption, but he also cleared our conscience from dead works. And as a result of what he did, that's where the therefore part comes in, is he is the mediator of a new covenant. And what that means is as our high priest, Christ acts as, as a mediator or an advocate between us and God. How many know that, that, that Jesus is there on your behalf? He intercedes for all who believe, looking after 
our interests and presenting our requests to God. He is the intermediary for us. And the great news about this new covenant, under this new covenant, is it's available to all those who are called. Now, I know there are different groups out there that think only a subset are called, but I believe what the Word says is that all are called. Not many answer, but all are called. And for all of us that is called, this inheritance is available. This inheritance is available to all of us who put their trust in Jesus Christ who have called them their Lord and Savior. They accept His work on their behalf on the cross. And the eternal inheritance that we receive is living with God forever. It's an eternity spent with Him in heaven. An eternity that has no end. It's not temporary. It's not one day we're going to have to do something to continue earning it. Christ went once and for all and because of that, we receive this internal inheritance, this, this eternal salvation. And then finally, his death has freed us from all guilt and sin that we had under the first covenant. The reality is, is that uh, sin incurs guilt. And because of that, there is a price to be paid. But Jesus took care of that for each and every one of us. And the great part about this is, and it's kind of why he's pointing out this, this first covenant, is it's not just including those of us who have lived after Jesus died. He took care of the sins incurred for all of those under the first covenant. All of those who died before Jesus ever came. We're going to see later in chapter 11, you guys remember Hebrews chapter 11, it's the, 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 the hall of faith. It's all the heroes of the faith that describes them. And at the end of it, what does he say? He says, they all died in faith, not having received the promise. See, one of the things that's interesting to me is, is if you just have a perfunctory read of the Bible and you just have a general idea, some people said, oh, there was the, the original covenant and then the new covenant come, you would almost get this idea in your head that God enacted the first covenant and it oh, just wasn't good enough. It just, it just kind of missed it. So you know what? He, he went ahead and he's going to wipe the slate clean and try again. But the reality is, is that Jesus was always the answer. Jesus was always the plan. The new covenant never saved, the old covenant never saved anybody who lived underneath it. Matter of fact, they, it's like it said, they all died in faith, looking forward to the promise. They were looking forward to what Jesus would do. The, the old covenant wasn't a, a, a failed attempted salvation. It was a stopgap. It was a temporary measure until Jesus came. And matter of fact, it prepared us. It was our tutor for when Jesus came. It prepared us for what was coming so that we'd have a little better understanding of it. And the reality is, is that everybody is relying on what Jesus did. Those who lived before he came, and certainly all of us who've lived after are relying on his promise, on this salvation, this eternal inheritance. He was always the plan. It always amazes me that. He was always the plan. Before the foundation of the world, that means before Adam and Eve were ever placed in the garden, before they ever ate from the tree, before Adam ever ate from the tree and, and essentially doomed all of mankind, 
Jesus was there before all. He was the plan before that. God knew what was going to happen. He wasn't surprised. And he still made a way. He was already prepared and ready from the foundation of the world. And it's his work on the cross that secures that eternal promise for all of us who choose to trust in his name and exercise faith in his name. And the good news is, is that we don't have to die in our faith looking forward to a promise. That promise is already available to us. Amen? And then he continues on in verse 16 through 17, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. These two verses are really going to deal with this idea that what, what Jesus did, this covenant, the second covenant, actually acted more like a will and testament. And this is some interesting stuff. Before we started this, Pastor Joseph goes, well, I'm so glad you're teaching this one. You have to talk, figure out what it's talking about with this will and testament last week. And the reason he said this, if you've ever actually looked into this just a little bit, the word here, the, the Greek word is uh, diatheke, that's, that's translated to, in this particular case, will, is the same exact Greek word that's translated as covenant just a few verses earlier. And here's the thing, a covenant and a will are very similar, but they're not exactly the same. A covenant actually does go into effect while everybody's living. It does, a covenant doesn't require death, but a will does. And like I said, this is actually, as I was studying, this is a pretty hotly contested verse. Matter of fact, you can take out any number of Bible translations, and they're all translated a little differently. The ESV, the one that I'm using here, says will. It translates that diatheke to the word will which is strange because it just translated it a few verses ago to covenant. The New American Standard Bible, it translates it to covenant consistently throughout. The New King James Version translates it to testament, as in will and testament. Seems no one can really decide. But what it seems to be the case here, we, we know that he's referring to, to uh, uh a will as in after somebody dies. That's the whole point of this talking about. Matter of fact, the verse before he begins preparing it for us because he starts talking about an inheritance. So it seems to be that the author is using a play on words. He's actually using this play on words, this use of inheritance in verse 15. It's, it's establishing the transition that the author wants to use. And, and like I said, if you remember when we first started this, I told you that the author of the book of Hebrews is very well versed in wordplay. He's very well versed as a writer. The words he uses, the things he does are very intentional, intentional. But he intends us to understand that this new covenant should be looked at as a will and testament, which only takes place after the initiator dies. That's the idea of this wordplay is he's transitioning from the idea of covenant into a will and testament. Because that's how will and testaments work, right? We understand that today. If you create uh, your last will and testament, when does it go into play? When you die. Otherwise, every, everything you put in there, all those declarations you've made, they don't take effect. Your kids can't come in and say, nope, you wrote this 10 years ago. It's just mine now. Because it's not yet. It doesn't, this, this, it doesn't execute 
until after the person that initiated it dies. And that's the idea of the new covenant. The new covenant didn't actually initiate until Jesus had died on the cross. So another way that you can think about this is that think of the new covenant being written into Jesus' will and testament. The covenant was there ready for us, but it didn't take effect until he died on the cross. But at that moment, when he died and gave his life on the cross, his will was enacted, and the new covenant snapped into place. The promised inheritance and our salvation and our eternal life at that moment was made available to us. You see, those that died before Jesus came, they were waiting for that will to be enacted. They were looking forward to that promise. And for all of us, we have it available to us now because that new covenant has been enacted. It says a will takes effect only at death since it's not his force as long as the one who made it is alive. But Jesus gave his life and at that moment, the new covenant was available to us. And then he continues on in verse 18 through 20. He says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now we're going to see that even though the first covenant was a covenant, the reality was is that blood was always a part of it. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So to really understand what's going on here, we have to take a look at uh, why blood is even required by the old covenant and why the truth is it's also required by the new covenant. And we need to take a look at how the Bible views sin and forgiveness. So first, God is perfect and holy. How many of you know that? That's, that's, uh, that's church 101. You should know that. God is perfect and he is holy. He is also the sovereign judge of the entire universe. As such, he has condemned sin and deems it worthy of death. Sin, all sin, not just the things that we think of as bad sin, but all sin is worthy of death. And the reality is that sin is kind of the, uh, the antithesis of God. It's like his, his opposite. They can't even coexist. Something that is unworthy or unclean or holy that has sin in the presence of God is destroyed. They can't even exist in the same space. And as a righteous judge and a holy judge, he must render sin its just reward. Which, as we talked about, is death. There's, there's no two ways about it. There's not light sins and hard sins. Every sin requires death. And in the Old Testament, for, for most sins, God accepted the blood of an animal as a substitute for the blood of the sinner. Although there are some exceptions, there are some bloods for some sins for which there were no sacrifice in the Old Testament. But for most sin, they could offer the sacrifice of an animal. And the animal's blood being shed was proof that one life had been given for another. The death of the, and blood of the animal actually represented the life of the man who was spared because of his sins. 
And as the author describes here, the first covenant was put in place by the shedding of blood. You can read about this happening in Exodus uh, 24, but it says that the, the blood that sealed the covenant, the blood of calves and goats, it was mixed with some water to symbolize cleaning. And then the scarlet wool was tied to the branches of hyssop brushes, and it was used to sprinkle the blood on the book of God's law and on his people. Moses sprinkled half the blood from the sacrificed animals on the altar to show that the sinner could once again approach God because something had died in his or her place. And then Moses then would sprinkle the other half on the people to show that the penalty for their sin had been paid and they could be reunited with God once again. Sin in the Old Testament required blood. The truth is, is this was actually a type and shadow of what would happen with Jesus Christ, as we now know. They were looking forward to it, not fully understanding it. We know they didn't fully understand it because how many of them missed it when Jesus showed up? But that's what they were looking forward to. So the first covenant also required blood to go into effect. And he continues on. In Hebrews 9, 21 through 22, he says, And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So just as we talked about earlier, when they, they, they initiated the new covenant with a sprinkling, of, a sprinkling of blood, almost everything, nearly everything, was sprinkled in blood under the old covenant to make it pure to clean it, to purify it, to make it ready to be used in service. And just as the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this is the stuff where people have a hard time with. They don't get that. How could God do that? How could God require death? That must make him an awful God. And you've probably heard this from people around you or on TV and all these different things, arguments against God. It's like, how could, he be, how could he be a good God if this is what's required? But it's because they missed the point we just talked about earlier. God is perfect, and God is holy, and God is just, and God is righteous. And if he were to sweep it under the rug, then he's no longer righteous. He's no longer just. And then we run into a really big problem. Because... When people do silly stuff like that, it's a character flaw. But they're still people. The thing is, is these are immutable characteristics of God. So if God were to do something like this, he's no longer God. So you see the problem. God can't just sweep this stuff under the rug. The penalty for sin is death. And that's the beauty of what God did. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's because blood is the greatest symbol of life. Blood is our very life. You know, I wonder, <laughs> there's so many things in the Bible, I love reading it because it, it makes a proclamation. And this is one that you can read through the Old and the New Testament. Blood has been the symbol of life since the beginning. This is what God has decreed. Even though there's some laws that say you can't do certain stuff with the blood because blood is life. This is what God has told them. Now, I don't know if you know this, but their scientific knowledge back then wasn't super high. 
I mean, there was the reality that if you drain somebody of blood, they died. I imagine they got that part right. But if you think about it, now what we know now about the blood and how many functions that it performs in the body, the, the blood in our body truly is our life. You can live without a kidney. You can live without parts of your liver. There's parts of our body you can just take out and get by without them. There's parts of the, I mean, you can live with no arms, no legs. You can't live without blood. It's always amazing to me that you look at these truths in the Bible and science keeps backing up fundamental truths as God's been saying since the beginning. There's a scripture, I believe it's in the Psalms, where God is talking about um, springs of water in, in the depths of the ocean, geysers of water. There's no way they could have known about that, but it was written about it. And now we know today that those things exist. There's all kinds of stuff like that in the Bible where, where science has just demonstrated that God is who he says he is, that God knew these things. Our blood is the greatest symbol of life, and sin requires a death as a judgment. We all know the famous verse in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death, and a just God has to require the bill be paid. Like I said, otherwise he's no longer just and he's no longer God. And this doesn't change under the new covenant either. Death and blood is still required. But Jesus shed his blood for us so that we wouldn't have to. So that our sins would be forgiven and that we wouldn't experience spiritual death. We wouldn't experience eternal separation from him he gave his own life to pay the penalty so that we might live and god made a way for us without compromising who he is a little while ago i said that's what's so beautiful about what god does and i didn't explain and you may wonder, what is he talking about but i love salvation because God completely satisfied his sovereignty, his justness, his righteousness, and still made a way for us. Like I said, God couldn't just sweep it under the rug or he's no longer God. And if he can't just sweep it under the rug, then the requirement is that we die for our sins. Every single one of us, that's what we deserve. We deserve death for our sins. There's no two ways around it because, because that's the penalty for sin. And every single one of us is sin. There's no way around it except for God, gave up his deity, became a man, and gave his life for us. He became a man because in order to pay for us, he had to be like us. But he remained God because if he was just a man, he could only pay for one man's sin. Now, he didn't sin, so he could have picked one other. But because he was God, his sacrifice was more than enough for each and every one of us. Jesus gave his life in place of ours, and I think it is the most amazing thing. God didn't compromise, but he still made a way. Amen. And then he continues on in verse 23. He says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
And we talked about last week that the, the earthly tent, the tabernacle, was an earthly representation of heavenly things. And the heavenly things were far greater than the things that represented them on earth. And as a result, the heavenly things being greater require a greater sacrifice, a greater uh, purification to make them pure. They needed much more than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. If the sacrifice of bulls and goats could have done it, I am certain that God wouldn't have sent His Son to die on the cross. But something greater was needed. And this better sacrifices that are needed refers to Jesus' one sacrifice. The plural here is not referring to Jesus needing to make multiple sacrifices. It's referring to the sacrifices, plural, that He replaced. He was the better sacrifice. And truthfully, this starts getting a little difficult to understand. I don't know if this has dawned on you yet, but we're talking about purifying heaven, something in heaven. Now that seems kind of weird to me because we're, if God's there, it can't need purification. God is pure and holy. If God, God couldn't reside there if it needed purification. So I begin to think this seems kind of strange to me. So it can't be talking about something actually in heaven. And it's funny, I'm going through commentaries, I'm studying this, and, and I'm, 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 people have pointed out the, the, how this seems like a contradiction. And I'm studying, and, and there's, I'm not seeing anything that's satisfying me, that's making me think this is what I was talking about. And I, and I begin to think, well, there is a, a, a temple that's created by God that needs cleaning, and that's you and I. And I thought I was clever, and then I found somebody else who thought the same thing. So that actually did, that did two things for me. One, that, that means that I'm not getting you know, revelation by myself. Anytime you're getting revelation by yourself, it's something to be worried about. <laughs> but the truth is, is that I, I believe that the, what he's talking about being corrupt is you and me. The Bible says that you and I are the temple of God. And for God to reside inside of us, how many of something's got to happen? You need to be cleaned. You need to be purified. Matter of fact, I have no problem saying that the moment you're saved, you are perfectly pure and holy and righteous. And what I mean by that is that at that moment, something supernatural happens inside of you and you are perfect and pure. And the reason I, I can be confident in that is because the Bible says that, that God's Spirit comes to live inside of us. And if we weren't, that would be an impossibility. Now the truth is, though, some of us take a little while for the outside to catch up with the inside. And I think that's because we actually don't have a true revelation of what has happened on the inside. Sometimes we push back because of all the guilt and shame and deception that we've endured over the years. We begin to think, how could I actually be pure? Doesn't God know the things that I did? Yeah, He did, and He loves you in spite of that. He went to the cross for you in spite of all those things. And then He made you pure so that he could reside in you. If Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient, then God couldn't reside in me. But he does, which means it was. And that means that I am holy because of what he did. Amen? Amen. Then in verse 24 through 26, it says, 
For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now appear to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Was that as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We're getting more of that contrast of the old covenant and the new, the Levitical priesthood and Jesus' priesthood. The old priest used to enter into the earthly representation of the heavenly reality, which was the Holy of Holies, and he did this once a year. But Jesus has entered into the heavenly place on our behalf. There are no others to go before him like the priests before. The priesthood before lasted until they died, and then another priest had to come and keep doing the same thing over and over, but Jesus went once. One, he's eternal. He's not going to die. So we don't need to get new priests to go in. Jesus is there perpetually as our advocate, as the mediator of our new covenant. He is our perfect representative, and he's in God's presence representing us to God. And importantly, he's not going in year after year after year offering sacrifices over and over and over with the blood of bulls and goats. But he went once and offered his own blood. You see, they had to keep going in and making sacrifices every single year. Apparently the forgiveness ran out, wore off. There was a problem with it. And really, with just a little bit of uh, uh, thinking about it, only a small amount of logic required, you can come to the conclusion that if they had to do it year after year, then it wasn't permanent. It had to keep going. It wasn't effective. If it was, there would be no repetition necessary. But with Jesus, it was a one-time thing. He's not sacrificing himself year after year. He went in once. He gave his life. And for all time, sins before and sins after his death have been made clean. The penalty has been paid for every single one of them. That's why I don't believe that anybody's going to hell for their individual sins. Sin has been dealt with. They're going because they didn't receive the free gift of God. The Bible does say that they're storing up for themselves wrath. So it's going to be worse for some than others depending on the sin that they, that they perform. But that's because they choose to pay the bill themselves when it's already been paid. It's already been taken care of. Sin has been dealt with. So instead they choose to pay a bill that's already been paid. It's like, could you imagine if you... You ever had those uh, people uh, pay it forward and you get up to the line at Starbucks or wherever and somebody's already paid for your drinks? Anybody happen to anybody else? Or have you paid for somebody else's drinks? Maybe that's what I should be asking. You should do that every now and then. Be a blessing to somebody else. But could you imagine if you did that, you paid for the drinks and they got up there and they were like, no thanks, I'm just going to pay for my own. That's what people who don't receive salvation are doing. God has made a way. He's paid the penalty of their sin. Sin has been dealt with, and they say, no thanks. I'm going to go ahead and pay for this on my own. Christ's sacrifice began the new covenant, and he was the perfect sacrifice. As a result, like I said, he came once for all time, and in doing so, he has removed the power of sin forever. 
he didn't just deal with sin. It's more than just covered, but sin was obliterated. It's forgiven and forgotten for all of those who put their trust in him. It's one of the things that I think as Christians we need to understand is that, that sin is done with. It's dealt with for all of us who put our trust in him. It's, it's paid for. That's why you should not spend so much time begging God to forgive you and just thanking Him that you're forgiven and get up and move on. That's the important thing is that you get up and move forward. Don't dwell in your failures or your past. Get up. Thank God that you're forgiven and move on. I'm not saying ignore sin. You should not be sinning. But if you do fall, get up and move on. Don't let it control you. Don't, let, don't, let you. don't spend sleepless nights worrying about how terrible you are because God doesn't want you to look at yourself. He wants you to look at Him and what He accomplished. That's why the Scripture that says that we should speak to the truth to one another in love is so misunderstood. That doesn't mean point out other people's failures, how, how bad they're screwing up. The truth is that you should remind them who they are in Christ. That's the truth, that they're forgiven, that they're free, that they're righteous. They don't have to remain where they are. That's the truth. Not that they're a horrible failure or they're screwing up. We have to get up and stop looking at our sin and start looking at the Lord. Amen? And we'll go ahead and end here this morning in Hebrews 9, 27-28. It says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting Him. Now I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. You guys might not know this, but the reality is, we're all going to die. Should the Lord tarry, we're all going to die. That's just how it is. The Bible says it's appointed for men to die once. And even if the Bible didn't say that, I think we could all make the assumption based on our collective experience that everybody dies. <laughs> and after that, judgment comes. There is not one who won't stand before God and give an account. But those of us who believe, those of us who have received the free gift of salvation, the gift of life, we can stand there in hope and not fear. In the book of John, it says that those who believe in Him are not condemned, but those who do not believe in Him are condemned already. That's right. You're not going to stand there having your sin weighed. The question is, do you believe or did you not? Did you put your faith in Jesus or did you not? But because Jesus died once and for all for the sins of us all, we will not have to die spiritually when that time comes. We may die once. Our earthly bodies, they wear out. But we don't have to die again. We don't have to die a spiritual death because He paid the penalty for all of our failures that would have caused that for us. And because He dealt with sin, He's not going to return to deal with sin. Why is He not going to return to deal with sin? Because sin's already been dealt with. He's not going to return to deal with sin, but instead, He's coming to bring salvation for all of us who are eagerly awaiting Him. Now note, there's a small warning in that if you didn't catch it. If you're not eagerly awaiting Him, you're not going to be where you want to be. 
But when he does return, he's going to put the last enemy under his feet and the full benefits of salvation will be realized for you and I. So church, let's ensure that we are those who are eagerly waiting him. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.